Good morning to all, and thank you for joining us for our fourth episode of Ruveni Real Talk, our bi-monthly video supplement to our Ruveni in real time weekly report. For those of you who are not familiar with our reports, I urge you to look us up and subscribe. With me is uh, TJ Quinn, our Director of New Development and Research. Today, we will be discussing the past two weeks of transactions from January 18th to January 31st, 2021. Our feature guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Mr. Mickey Naftali, Chairman and CEO of the Naftali Group. Mickey is the uh, developer of the very successful new development project on the Upper East Side, the Benson. Um, someone described Mickey to me, someone in the business, another developer described Mickey to me as the, as the true developer's developer. Uh, Mickey will be joining us uh, shortly and we will have a detailed conversation about how he sees the market, his, uh, his current and upcoming projects, um, and general, general discussion about the market and going forward into 2021. Um, let's jump into the past two weeks in terms of transactions and in terms of statistics and in terms of data and see what's transpired. Uh, TJ, you wanna walk us through it? Yeah, and so let me thank you for the intro. So you know, I'd like to start by talking about number of transactions and dollar volume. So over the past two weeks, we've seen 339 signed contracts, which represented about 729 million in dollar volume. You know, a very solid two week period. Although when you compare it to the two weeks that preceded it, it is a bit lower, about 10% less in terms of number of signed contracts, 5% less in terms of dollar volume. What really brought down the, the last two weeks was probably the first week. So that would have been January 18th to the 24th. It was much slower, only about 131 transactions, which came out to about 288 million in dollar volume. Now it, it's worth noting that that week did fall over inauguration. You know, inauguration day was the very beginning of that week. I'm sorry, with the very middle of that week. And there was obviously a lot of uncertainty surrounding exactly what would happen. Uh, so it's very possible that, you know, a lot of buyers kind of held back signing contracts that week um, until we, you know, until we, uh, we got past the inauguration. And then what's really interesting is the, the week that came after it. So January 25th to the 31st, that was actually the very best week we've had since COVID began. 208 signed contracts, which came out to over $440 million worth of dollar volume. Um, you know, it was probably a function, we spoke about this on the last talk, probably a function of some of the pent up demand that we've started to see. There could have been a lot of folks that, that held back signing over the inauguration week and waited until the following week. Um, so that could have been, could have been uh, one of the reasons uh, why we saw such incredible numbers last week. What's even more interesting to me is that, that, is that last week was one of the most volatile weeks in the equity markets that we've seen in quite a while. You know, there is a lot going on with all of the Reddit, you know, Wall Street bet stuff. So despite that, we still had an incredible week in terms of, uh, you know, contract activity in Manhattan. So that was really, really great to see. And then what was equally as amazing is when you compare the last two weeks versus those same two weeks in 2020, we were better. We were about 7% more in terms of dollar volume. So, you know, despite the, the stock market volatility, despite the, uh, you know, uncertainty, surrounding the inauguration, we're still doing better than we were at this time last year. So really, really great to see that. Just to, uh, to break down some of those signed contracts from the last two weeks, so about 83% of those were under $3 million, 72% were under $2 million, and 41% were under a $1 million. So pretty consistent with what we've been seeing for the last few months. Um, 
61% of those deals were for co-ops, 37% were condos, and 1% were townhouses. So also pretty consistent with what we've been seeing recently, although we are seeing fewer townhouses trade. You know, in, in, in some of our first talks, we spoke about, um, you know, all the activities surrounding townhouses in Greenwich and West Village, and we, we haven't seen as much of that recently. So it, it's probably a function of a lot of that supply being absorbed. Uh, so, hey, if you're looking to, you know, sell a, a townhouse in, in West Village or Greenwich Village, now might be a good time to put it on the market because a lot of that supply has started to dwindle. Um, in terms of the average percent off uh, last asking price, last week we saw 5.7%. And just for comparison, when we spoke two weeks ago, it was at about 7.1%. So just to remind our audience, uh, that is basically the percent difference between the last asking price before something went into contract and any price that came before it. So not representative of, of the true percent off. We won't know that until the apartment closes. It's really just you know, a way for us to measure how much of a discount you need in order to, to engage a buyer. And, and you know, five to 7% is, is about what we've been seeing pretty consistently for the last several months now. Another interesting takeaway from the last two weeks you know, when we spoke last time, we talked about how about 5% of all resale transactions over the, out there were over 5 million, but 24% of the new development transactions out there were, were over 5 million. This time around, we're still seeing about 5% of resales over 5 million, but now it's 35% of new development deals over 5 million. Um, Donna Olshan touched on this, I think, in her report from this week, about half the, uh, half the deals in her report were new developments. And, you know, we talked about this as well. More and more new developments are trading. Um, it's got to be a function of negotiability. Uh, but either way, it's great to see, you know, so many of these projects, you know, start to uh, start to see activity. Just jumping into inventory. So last week we saw 213 new listings hit the market. Uh, it's the fourth consecutive week now that we've had over 200 hit the market. Um, just for, for context for our audience here, that's not a crazy number. You know, over the end of summer, early fall, there were some weeks where we saw over 400 new listings come on the market. Um, so, you know, definitely, you know, a, a number that's sustainable. And, and actually, we are starting to see inventory go down, you know, ever so slightly. When we spoke two weeks ago, there was about 8,700 units on the open market. Now there's about 8,600 units on the open market. So about 1% less versus our last talk two weeks ago. Not surprising. You know, it makes sense that inventory right now will, will you know, kind of plateau. But, but again... I think we'll start to see that uh, spike up a bit, you know, probably towards the end of this month, beginning of March, that number will probably increase, um, which is which is typical, you know, you, you I mentioned this last time, you typically see about a 10% increase in inventory between Q4 of one year and Q1 of the next year. And I think we'll, we'll start to see that more and more as we get deeper into the quarter. So that's really interesting. And a few a few data points here are really interesting to me. The fact that 5% of all resale transactions are over $5 million versus 35% of all new development deals are over $5 million is, is amazing. I think the rest of the statistics, the rest of the data that you just described here is pretty consistent and has been pretty consistent in the past few months. But the number of deals over $5 million just keeps increasing in new development projects, which to me means... Uh, first of all, of course, the demand, there are strong transactions, which we'll talk about in a minute, and those are just increasing with time. Uh, 
but also I'm sure there's a very high degree of negotiability within uh, these new development uh, projects. That's why we're seeing more activity and more, uh, more transactions. The, the point you mentioned about uh, inventory in the townhouse market, I think also um, is, is complementary with the new development market for very, speci very special units, penthouses with outdoor spaces in boutique buildings. The number of uh, active uh, listings like that is just diminishing at this point as we get more and more absorption at, at the high end for very uh, special units. Uh, but let's talk about uh, some notable um, transactions in the past two weeks. Um, 70 Vestry um, in Tribeca has had a very strong uh, transaction that just occurred. 70 Vestry is related to new development project. Um, apartment 11N, which is a sponsor unit and was listed at 28 million point five. 5,000 square feet went into contract um, at almost $5,700 a foot. That, that is huge uh, for any market, and especially within the context of the market that we're experiencing now with COVID-19. Um, I believe there was another apartment that closed recently in December, apartment 12N. That might have been an off-market uh, transaction at 37 million, 36.8 million to be exact. It was 4,600 square feet, and that was about almost $8,000 a foot. That's an incredible transaction, um, again, within the past six months uh, in Tribeca. Tribeca has been a consistently very strong market. Um, Woolworth Tower, uh, which is um, at, uh, at the edge of Tribeca, uh, apartment 29B, the last asking price was 14 million 4,600 square feet, went into contract at almost $3,200 a foot, very respectable price per square foot, and especially price point for that part of town. Uh, in a stunning building. This building was designed, as we know, by architect Cass Gilbert. Um, and this was at one time New York City's first high rise and the tallest building in the world, actually, right? From 1913 to 1930, uh, with a height of, seven, of, of almost 800 feet. Amazingly, it still remains one of the uh, 100 tallest buildings in the United States. But in addition to uh, 29B, there was another apartment that went into contract this past couple of weeks, right? Yeah, that, that's right. So there was another trade there uh, for $7 million. Uh, also happened last week. And it's interesting, you know, two weeks ago when we, we spoke about the Woolworth and the fact that they've started to see a lot more activity. And lo and behold, just last week, they had two big trades. Um, we talked about some of the discounts that Woolworth has, has been giving. I'm sure once these two units that went into contract last week close, we'll, we'll probably see a similar level of discount. But either way, really great to see such an iconic building, you know, start to pick up some momentum. Yes, amazing building, great transactions. And again, I think another testament as to the fact that there's, there was negotiability out there and we're seeing, we're seeing uh, transactions. Let's move on to another submarket, the Upper West Side. Uh, that has seen recently very strong transactions. Uh, the White House at 262 Central Park West, Penthouse, four, Penthouse S, four-bedroom apartment with beautiful outdoor space, 3,500 square feet, uh, went into contract. Last asking is $19,750,000. That's around $5,600 or $5,700 a foot. That is huge for the Upper West Side. I believe that uh, the highest sell on the Upper West Side um, 
this is the highest sale on the Upper West Side since 2018, when the San Remo at 145 Central Park West, apartment C, sold for $24 million. Um, so a, a huge transaction for the Upper West Side. By the way, I believe that Abe Rosenthal, who was the manager editor of the New York Times, uh, owned this penthouse at some point in the past, just uh, uh, an FYI about uh, the apartment. Um, another strong transaction, uh, this time in, a Green in Greenwich Village, uh, 37 East 12th Street. Uh, this is uh, the pen. This is very interesting. So the penthouse is was listed at 19.5 million dollars. This is a boutique project that initially launched in 2015. The sponsor here is uh, the developer is Minskov, and this apartment, this specific unit, was listed back in 2015 for 33 and a half million dollars. It now sold at 19.5 six years later. I understand that there's one other unit that's a sponsor listing, a townhome that's listed at around $10 million. But this is interesting six years later to have a transaction, a big transaction for today's market, um, still at $3,200 a foot, mid-block, no amenities. I don't think the apartment gets you great views, but it's sold now. Why, why do you think that is, TJ? Why, why after six years, uh, a transaction this strong in, in this building? Yeah, so I think it's a couple things, you know, we, we in some of our last chats, we've spoken about, you know, the increased demand for, uh, for boutique buildings, you know, it gives you an opportunity to control your own environment from a health perspective. Uh, so I, I think that may have been driving, you know, the, uh, the trade here, again, only six units in this building. Um, and, and it's got to come down to negotiability as well. You know, I, I think, you know, after six years, sponsored lower their expectations. So when you combine those two things, I think it results in, in the sale that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, the Upper East Side is continuing to see uh, very strong momentum, and we'll delve more into that in a minute with our guest. Uh, but another interesting transaction at 1010 Park Avenue on the 11th floor, this is Excel's new development project, signed contract uh, in the past two weeks, last asking of $18.5 The apartment is, uh, that comes out to about $4,800 a foot. If you recall, two weeks ago, the ninth floor went into contract at ask price of 15.9, which is about 41 a foot. The fifth floor sold for $9.7 million in September of 2020, that that's 25 a foot. And that was about 40% off its original price um, of $16 million in 2017. Now these are all identical apartments. There's, there's obviously renewed activity in the building, uh, which again, to me means that uh, there's some serious negotiations going on, but it's really nice to see all these transactions. Uh, the next building, which, is, which seems to be the leading building in a city in terms of transactions and success, um, is the Benson, 1045 Madison Avenue. The ninth floor, which was listed at $13,750,000, uh, is, listed, is listed now in contract. That's about 4,200 square feet, about $3,300 a foot. This is another huge sale after numerous impressive transactions at the Benson in the past couple of months. Uh, the penthouse was reported in contract in November for $35 million. Um, the Upper East Side is obviously continuing its amazing momentum. Uh, in the past few months, we saw big sales at new development projects such as 1010 Park Avenue, 10979 Street, 20 East End Avenue, 1228 Madison Avenue, which is a condo, um, and 40 East End Avenue, as well as some various big co-op deals. 
but certainly leading the success on the Upper East Side right now is uh, the Benson. Um, thank you, TJ, for all the data and, um, and your information. Um, I'd like to introduce our next uh, our speaker, our feature speaker, uh, Mickey Naftali. Uh, thank you, Salami. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, TJ. Good morning, Mickey. Good morning, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much. It's really great to have you with us. I thank you for your time and uh, for coming on. Um, Mickey Naftali is the chairman and CEO of the Naftali Group. Uh, Mickey, of course, is very well known for converting and developing one of the most notable projects in New York, the iconic Plaza Hotel. Uh, in addition, his experience spans 25 years in the real estate industry, as well as national and, and overseas projects. Uh, with other recent notable New York City projects, such as the Shepherd in the West Village, 221 and 210 West 77th Street, 182 West 82nd Street, uh, the Seymour in Chelsea, uh, 234 East 23rd in Gramercy Park, the list just goes on and on. Uh, Mickey, I started, I started this, uh, this presentation this morning by saying that a developer that I spoke with who knows you um, said that you are a true developer's developer uh, with a keen eye, smart, experienced, no, no knee-jerk reaction, someone who's very strategic about what they do, uh, amazing reputation in the marketplace, which uh, goes a long way with buyers and brokers today, given the environment, as well as partners and financial institutions. Um, you have an amazing experience um, with um, a major company in the past, but now you have your own company and you've been doing incredibly well since. Can you tell us a little about the Naftali Group and, and your positioning in the marketplace and what makes you unique in this marketplace? Well, first of all, thank you very much. Maybe I shouldn't say anything anymore after the, the compliments. Uh, just oh, I, have, I have more coming. <laughs> but um, look, what... what um, I'm doing real estate for over 30 years. And uh, I think what, what is very important is to get to a point that you feel comfortable in, in what you do. You, you, you are, you are uh, keep, uh, keep, keep being in a position that you're realistic. Uh, you try to, our philosophy is, we try to do the best that we can. Um, we try to design and develop the best buildings that we can. Otherwise, why to waste time on, on doing so? We're trying to make sure that we are uh, realistic in our underwriting and we are never ever take a, a project or an investment just for the sake of uh, doing it. It's really more about A, if it makes financial sense and then how we can create the best product that we can now. I'm sure that most of your, the, the vast majority of your audience are brokers and brokers are very important for me and for my, my, my company. My philosophy is I'm not trying to impose my personal opinion or my personal taste on my future buyers. That's the biggest mistake that any developer can do. What I try to do is to listen to the market, try to understand what is the demand, 
And the best people that can tell me about the demand in the market is you guys. You guys know because day in, day, day out, you're out there, you're speaking with your buyers, you, speak, you, you, you know what they want. And if I go and I start a project on the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, depends where exactly, I listen to the brokers, as many brokers as I can. And obviously, eventually, I need to make the decisions and, and make sure that the product that we are creating makes sense. But I never try to impose my personal taste. My personal taste, I'm going to do in my house or my apartment. I always like, I try to, to listen and there are different opinions. So try to understand within the different opinions that I get from the brokers, where is the, where is the common sense? Where is really what, what the market is looking for? And that's what we are creating. But that's not easy, right? Because we, we can collect data all day long. Right. And it's not about the data that we collect. It's about how you interpret it. And it, it's about how you, how you see it also into the future. Because developing a project is not about today. It's not about tomorrow. It's about two, three years from now. Right. Anything can change in terms of trends, demand for unit mix, demographics, design trends, and so forth. But, you know, just looking at some of the projects that you did recently and what's, what's been shared here on the screen is just very small sample of what you did recently. Obviously, your experience spans 25 years and there's just thousands of apartments that you've created. But just looking at this, you know, I remember us meeting in 2010 or 2000, early 2011, when I was doing a project on the Upper West Side called the Laureate. And you came in to view the project. Um, and at the time, you know, the Laureate was a successful project at the right. time, but that submarket was not that well known. Right. right? You, the Laureate sort of, you know, um, was the canary in a coal mine, if you will, right? It, it kind of opened up the ability to, uh, it showed developers that there's tremendous potential on the Upper West Side. Now you seized on it. Right. And you took really strong advantage of a submarket that was really needed good product that had the demand. It was right after 2000, 2009, uh, fall of the economy. And you created buildings that are just amazing buildings. And, and what's nice about the way you work is it's not just identifying the submarkets, but creating a product that really works and sells, right? So for example, 182 West 82nd Street was a tough conversion. That's a, tough, that's a tough building to work, but you did it extremely well and it sold extremely well. 221 uh, West 77th and 210 West 77th Street. If you, if you just look at these projects back then, this wouldn't necessarily be the type of design that's right for that neighborhood. But you did, and I know you made some adjustments on one of them, but they sold extremely well and they're all holding up their resale value. Right. Uh, you did the same thing at the Shepherd. You see an amazing opportunity of a conversion, now a conversion, now not just um, ground up, which you're very good with, right? You do both. And another very successful project, and the list goes on and on. So, and you use different designers. Can you tell me how you make that decision, right? And we'll talk about, um, you know, the Benson and, and what you're doing right now. But how do you make your decision when it comes to picking designers? The Shepherd, you use uh, Gashot, right? Yeah, um, and then on West 77th yeah. Street, you had uh, Thomas Jewel Hansen. Correct. 82nd Street, I think you had ODA, if I'm not um, That's mistaken. Correct. Uh, yeah. The Seymour, you had uh, Rotet Studio, and, and I think same thing in Gramercy. So you use different people for different projects. How do you how do you how do you arrive at that conclusion? What designer to use? 
So it's really, and, and we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the existing uh, projects that we are in the, in the pipeline. So it's kind of a morph into, into the question, but basically we are, we are trying to find, uh, you know, most of those that you mentioned are interior designers, not necessarily the, uh, the architects, uh, the, the architects or the uh, architects of record, but in any event, really trying to walk ashore, for example, when we looked at the, at the, at the West Village, you know, we knew that, that we, need to, uh, uh, we need to cater into the specific uh, vibe, ambience and taste that West, uh, the West Village uh, buyers are looking for. And Gashaw, I think is a fantastic studio. I wouldn't necessarily use them to design a project on the Upper East Side, for example, but they are perfect match uh, for, for the West Village. But even that, once you pick and choose the designer, a lot is going, we, we don't let the designer dictate their taste, their specific taste on the product. Again, it's, we spend thousands of hours getting information from the brokers, challenging our brokers, speaking with as many people as we can, looking at other projects, looking at resale apartments that went through a major renovation and trying to understand what is really, what is a desirable product? Because again, at the end of the day, we are creating a product that is, we spend enormous amount of time and money and we are hoping and trying to make sure that at least 70%, 70% of the potential buyers will like it. And if we do that, then it's easier for you guys because you need to bring the clients and the project is going to be successful. So once you, we, we pick and choose the interior designer, it's also a lot of work in steering them to work where the market is demand and not what they specifically want to do. So for example, the Benson, which is on Madison Avenue and 79th Street, when we, when we walked on the assemblage, we said, who is, who is the right architect for, to design this once in a lifetime uh, uh, assemblage on, on such a, a very, very difficult you know, geographic area to, to create a new, a new project? And to us, the perfect architect was Peter Penoyer. I wouldn't hire Peter Penoyer to design a project for me on the Lower East Side or in Tribeca, but prime, prime, prime Upper East Side, he's the perfect architect. But because when you look at the best, the, the most desirable town, townhomes, the most desirable uh, combination of apartments major renovation that were done on Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue and anywhere between Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, Peter Penoyer is the leading architect over there. He is the specific, he's very specific for this specific, very specific uh, geographic area. Right. And he, so that's how we went, we went through the process of, you know, hiring him. Sure. And he also, he, he's got recent success with uh, 151 E78 Street, which, which again was beautifully designed boutique, high-end, and right. very successful project for very specific, I would say, demographic that, you know, appreciates that type of design concept. 
Right. Tell me, Mickey, how, how involved are you personally with the design process, with the floor plans, with the architectural, with the interior design? How involved are you personally? I'm extremely involved, extremely. Uh, um, this is very important for me because this is the phase that we create the product. So I'm extremely involved between the time that we work on trying to buy a, a, a site or assemble a site or buy existing building or whatever, through picking and choosing the right uh, team. It's not only the architect and the interior designer, the other uh, team members that are very important in some big project. The landscape architect, for example, is extremely important because it's part of creating you know, the, the, the concept and the theme of the project. To a point, so concept design, what we call in the professional language concept design and design development, I'm very, very involved with my, my top executives in this entire process. Once we go into the phase of construction documents, which is really more about coordination between the different, uh, the different uh, design team members, mechanical engineers, then I'm stepping back and I'm working very closely with uh, the marketing and sales team, very, very closely to create the branding of the, of the project. Now, if there, is any, if there are any issues during the construction coordination that can impact the product, then it come back to my desk uh, to, my, you know, to, to make a decision, what, you know, what's the right solution to do it. So I'm, I'm extremely involved in that. that I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm still very passionate about it. I love it. That's the best, uh, the best thing. You know, yeah, that's the fun. That's the fun process of a project. But you know, it's uh, you can only so you can create the concept. You can have the vision. You have the opportunity. You have to have a very strong infrastructure in terms of your team sure. in house, and of course the outside professionals. But in house, uh, nobody really knows better than you. Nobody really knows better than your own team what it is you want to. What is the objective that you want to get to? And while you have all these great professionals, be it structural and, uh, and mechanical and you know zoning and, and, and interior design and architect and attorneys and management and construction and brokers at the same time, at the end of the day, it's about your success and not anybody else's success or anybody else's ego. So it's a lot of management and, and your team has to be very strong. Absolutely. And I have to say something again. I mean, different brokers see it in a different way. The, the sales and marketing team, the third party that we are using based on the project, they are involved from day one. We're not creating a product and then we hire somebody to sell it and say, look, this is, this is the bride, go and try to sell. No, we, we want to hear their opinion from day one. And by the way, like in a good family, we argue, we, you know, we, we have different opinions and I encourage that. I don't want to be in a position that I say something and everyone telling me, yes, you, you're right, you're right, you're right. Then I'm going to make the wrong decisions. I want to hear different opinions. And many times we have different opinions. And by, by hearing all those different opinions, eventually we are creating the best product that we can. So that's, that's a smart developer, right? That is a developer who, ha who is open-minded to hearing different opinions, but also based on experience and trust, um, you know, 
Um, I, I think that that's where it is. And when I say smart developers, I think a lot of, uh, there are many projects out there that were created, not necessarily based on that type of a process, what? in terms of analysis and consideration and, and, and smart strategy and decision execution. But, you know, people make decisions for different reasons in terms of design and architecture. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with ego. Right. A lot of it has to do with information that comes from sources that are not necessarily the right sources. And we've seen that. Let's talk about the Benson. I do want to come back to your sure. pipeline uh, because that's really important. But I want to talk about the Benson. Uh, but by the way, why, why the Benson? Is that based on uh, the, the 1980s TV sitcom uh, with Robert no. Guillaume? No. So this is actually to honor my, my dad that died many years ago. His name was, uh, in English, Benjamin. And we really wanted to call it uh, the Benjamin. But, uh, and, and my daughter, Danielle, which is, which is the head of our uh, marketing and sales, uh, she actually kind of, uh, when we started to work on the project, she, she said, why not, why not to, to work on that and, and to do that, you know, and, and to bring the, the name. And, and it was very, uh, you know, very nice for me to, to think about it. But we couldn't call it the Benjamin because the, there is a, the Benjamin Hotel in, in New York and, the, and I think even a restaurant. But in any event, so we're looking at different uh, variation. So it's the, the son of Ben, Ben's son, right? That's beautiful. Uh, and, beautiful. And, 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 uh, I, guess, I guess there is a legacy aspect to your business as well. Um, this is a family business, your daughter, right. who's amazingly talented. Uh, and I just keep hearing her name now in the industry all the time, uh, you should know, uh, all very in a very positive way. Um, so it's nice to know that this is a family business and, and, and you have that legacy. So before I talk about the Benson in detail, I want to ask you something else, uh, which, is, uh, which was pretty incredible when it happened. This. Right. So... I, I gotta hear from you how this came to, you know, when, when Jerry Seinfeld came up with this, you know, op-ed in the New York Times, the industry was on fire. You know, this, this was at a time where things were very, still, even now, but back then felt very depressed. Um, you know, uh, every, every other article and, and story and, and publications and on the media was, was negative about New York people leaving, the lifestyle, the crime. New York is going down the tube. And then New York City's favorite child, Jerry Seinfeld, came up and, and did this, uh, put this article together. And it was such a boost of energy and, and good feeling about New York, you know? Um, it was amazing. I know that within the, the real estate industry, um, people just felt, you know, very emotional about this. Uh, but tell me how this came to. How did you get Jerry Seinfeld, Seinfeld's face on your building? So um, just a little bit background. Uh, historically, every time that we have a project that is in, in the middle of a construction, let's say the superstructure is up uh, and we are uh, at, 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 the, at the holiday season, we always try to do something because to be honest, for the neighbors, construction is a pain in the egg. Okay, it's really annoying. And we can't do a lot. I mean, you can't you can't silence the noise, or you know, we try to be good neighbors and, and to do the best that we can, but construction is construction. So we always try 
in, in the holiday season to do something nice. For example, you mentioned the two buildings on, on West 77th Street that, that we did 210 and, and 221. At the time, what we did, the, the superstructure was up. We, we, hired the, we hired this very talented uh, um, artist and we, which we, he created like a, a really funny story. We printed it on, 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 a, on a mesh and we covered the entire facade. And it was really for the neighborhood and a lot of the, the you know, the, the family, parents and mom and dads came with their kids, looked at it and, and they had really good time during, that. that was about four years ago, right? But it wasn't on Madison Avenue. So we didn't, it, it, the intention wasn't to get coverage in, in, the, in the media. It was really to give back to, to the neighborhood. And it was very nice and it worked very well. So the Benson, again, we were at the point that the superstructure was up. We are in the middle of a construction. And you know, we, we spoke internally in the office and I, and I said, okay, let's, let's brainstorm what can we, I want to do something. We are on Madison Avenue and 79th Street. I want to do something to, to make it nicer for the holiday season. And we, we, we brainstorm on different ideas. And then I said, look, what about if we take Jerry Seinfeld's op-ed and we put it as big as we can on the building? So you're, you're, so you're the creative aspect of the company also. So everyone looked at me and said, are we going to get uh, Jerry Seinfeld to, to agree in the New York Times? So I told Danielle, my daughter, I said, not my problem. Go, <laughs> <laughs> go and get it done. And so, so you met with him, right? No, she got it done. She didn't meet with him also, COVID and all of that. So she got it done. She, she, she spoke with a friend that worked, works for a big agency in, in, in Los Angeles that represents a lot of uh, the celebrities. And he also told her, are you, are you crazy? Jerry Seinfeld, how are you going to get him? I, and, and I pushed her, she pushed him. He emailed the, his agent. And within 24 hours, we got, hey, Jerry loves the idea. What, what is next? So well, to make a long story short, we signed a, a, a three-party agreement between us, Jerry Seinfeld, and the New York Times. And we got the rights because we, we didn't want to do anything, you know. Of course. We want to make sure we have the rights. We got the rights uh, to put it on our building. And he lo- I, I got a personal note from him. He did a PBS uh, a story about it. He He's absolutely in love with, with the idea. And it was great. Everyone- well, that's, that's, a great uh, that's a great marketing initiative and, and great for Jerry, you know, to agree to this. And it definitely got you more headline and more exposure. But I don't think I don't think you needed that with a Benson, right? No, no. It, the Benson, it, right? Benson is uh, um, it's fifteen it's fifteen units, right? You have a total of original Schedule A, uh, two hundred and twenty million. I think you're already over the fifty percent uh, sell mark. Um, tell me, tell me something. When you when you came up with that site, did you? immediately know that that's the kind of design concept and unit mix you're going to apply in that location? Well, more about, I didn't know exactly the, the, the unit size because it was, we, we had to go through a, 
again, the, the many, many, many hours of back and forth with the brokers and, and looking at different things. But the design, I knew one thing, that I want to build a building that is going to be very expensive to build, but it's going to be real and authentic, okay? And I knew it has to be a limestone building. This is the, this is the, this is the place that you want to build a, a limestone building. And the specific uh, uh, customers and clients that want to, to live in a very tiny geographic area between Park Avenue and Fifth and anywhere between the high 60s to the high 80s, the only option that they had is, is really buying into the core buildings. Uh, some of them are fantastic buildings, but they are old. And the majority of them, the windows, the opening, the windows are small, mechanical equipment are, you know, old, elevators are small and old, and no amenities. So I, I knew that I want a limestone building, an authentic limestone building, but to bring it to 2020 or 2021. And how do you do it? By creating big openings, not small windows, big openings that you can allow yourself with the technology today with the window and glass. We have triple glass, window and glass, Amazing. and the mechanical systems that you can really deal with it. You have the fantastic air condition, fantastic eating, and all of that, and unbelievable amenity package that you cannot get in any other core building. So, so, so that let me ask you, this, this concept, because I think it's pretty gutsy, right? I mean, I could see, you know, recommendations being made for why build so big. We don't know about the economy. We don't know about the market. Let's take a safer approach and let's do smaller units that are more absorbable, you know, that's easier to absorb in a marketplace possibly uh, at a lower price point. You'll still have the location. You'll still have buyers that want to buy there, but why risk it for, ch for such big units? Now, you took a gamble here, I think, a very strong gamble and it came out amazing. You hit it just like, you know, it's the perfect storm in terms of location, in terms of timing and market, in terms of demand, in terms of demographic that is currently, they own the market, very affluent. Some of them probably made more money during COVID, um, very successful and all looking for the same concept that you built. Do you think you have another project coming up at, um, it's at 1165, correct? 1165 Madison. Do you think that in, within this submarket, if you take the formula that you created here and you just duplicate it, it will be a home run all day long so, regardless of market conditions? So that's a good question. I, I, I beg the difference. I don't think I took a big gamble because we, we really, really looked at and tried to understand where what's the demand in the market, in this specific market, not in different markets, because... You know, on the left side of the screen, you're showing 83rd, 200 East 83rd Street. We'll talk about it, though. This is different unit sizes. We're not ready really to talk about it, but basically. Madison Avenue and 79th Street, the demand is for big units. And I have to tell you, every, I, I sold all the penthouse units that I have, big units. And if I would have 10 more of those, I would be able to sell them. Because that's where the demand. I have buyers that what they want is what I sold already. The big, big, big units. That's what they want. Because but, but, but Mickey, why? Tell me because 
because no, it doesn't exist. No, but, but let's just backtrack for a second. The, the, this, is, this is against, this goes against what's been happening in the city in the past three months, goes against everything you hear and read. One, about the economy. Two, about New York. Three, about the future, right? So there is, you know, you, you know about Barry Sterlich's, uh, you know, predictions about New York City, right? Starwood left uh, to Miami in 2018. Goldman Sachs is leaving and taking its asset management division. I think they have like $8 billion in annual revenues with it. Alliance Bernstein moved to Nashville. And you, you keep hearing about people talking about moving to Florida, moving to, you know, states where the taxes are not as, uh, you know, not as severe as New York. At the same time, you, talk, you, you hear about local government and the way the city is managed homelessness, crime, um, why aren't your, your buyers, why are they buying? Aren't they moving down to Florida? Well, they might have a second home in Florida. It does, I mean, those are very wealthy buyers. They might have a second home in, or third home in Florida and a home in Dampton. Some of them, I have a couple of buyers that are West Coast buyers that are spending half of their time in the West Coast and half of their time uh, in New York. New York is a fantastic city. Of course, we, uh, we are not at the best time of, of you know, in the, in the city uh, life, but New York is coming back. New York will come back. It might take a year. It might take two years. It might take three years. But when you look at the end of the day, when you look, New York suffered substantial problems in the past, much more severe than what we have right now, and New York always came back. You cannot replicate the, the we look at the, about the bad infrastructure that we have, the roads that are, the potholes that we have and the subway that is not working all, all around. But you can replicate the infrastructure that you have and the convenience that you have in New York in, in any other city. And if you try to do it, it will take 50 years to do it. And it doesn't take two or three years with the museums and park and everything that we have here, you know, people are taking it for granted. You don't have it anymore. And, and I have to tell you something very interesting. We have buyers that couldn't sell their mega mansions in Greenwich, Connecticut for the last 10 years. Now, because of the pandemic, they got rid of the, of the mansions and they're buying in the city. Because- How, how ironic. How ironic is that? Huh? Exactly. Now we have other we have other buyers that at the beginning back in March of last year. Now it's last year. Back in March, they moved wherever they they moved to Connecticut. They moved to Dampton and whatever. And they come back now and they say we can't stand it anymore. We right. can't. We need to drive. We where well, there are two restaurants in the area. We can't deal with it anymore. We are we we want to come back to the city. Now, a lot of people are leaving as well. I understand that. But at the end of the day, New York is New York. It will come back. And what is the best time? What is the better time to buy? The better time to buy uh, is we're, that- we're, we're seeing the same. Uh, um, the past four months have been um, amazing in a way in terms of business. Uh, you know, on one hand, you have, for, just for the brokerage industry, right? You have brokers that have had the best years they've ever had in the business, 
right? They sold very large apartments, very expensive units, and they keep doing these type of deals because they're very networked with that type of demographic. On the other hand, you have brokers that have been in the business for maybe 15 to 20 years that are not making any money at all right. because things are very difficult. And unless you have the, the real network of buyers, it's very difficult. We did see in very specific submarkets like the Upper East Side, uh, like the West Village, like Tribeca, very strong momentum with big transactions, mostly local New York families. Most of them, of course, have homes outside the city, be it Connecticut or Long Island or Miami. But their dedication is to New York. They will not live anywhere else, at least not now. Their kids go to school here uh, and they have commitment and trust and faith in the city. And in a way, there's an old saying like, you know, when I hear of people that want to move out of New York, it's like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? This is it. This is where it all happens. And today, in most places, they can get better deals. They haven't bought in the past three years because prices were high. But today, with cash, they can get great deals. So let's talk about New York for a minute. I can talk to you like for three more days straight, but uh, I know your time is very valuable. I want to ask you about a few things about New York. Um, retail, offices, hotels, multifamily, hospitality, co-working shared spaces. You know, while the residential market is doing well at a certain sector and your building is definitely an example of that, there's a financial meltdown when it comes to the commercial real estate aspect. Where do you see the future as far as that's concerned? And I know it's a big question because there's a lot involved yeah. here. Um, but give me your, you know, your, your view on what you see and where you think things are going. Right. Well, the retail sector, I think, is a disaster. I, I never liked it. And, uh, and I, I don't see a real uh, recovery. Okay, the, the local neighborhood type of uh, retail will, will stay, obviously. But uh, uh, so, so just as far as retail, do you do you um, do you like the idea of a vacancy tax? No. Okay. No. I, I'm not in favor of any tax, by the way. You know, it's really not how you uh, the right way to encourage uh, what artificially try to push people to, you know, to to rent their their unit. No, they you know if landlords if they have most of them. They have loans and the banks, uh, you know, will, will start to, you know, put more and more pressure. Eventually, either the banks will take over or they will sell their notes and, uh, and whoever will buy the, the note will foreclose and, and go back to the market at, at whatever price the market is clearing. Because the problem with retail is just too expensive. So, you know, it just you can't really it's, it's not sustainable to open whatever you want to open, a restaurant or, or a fashion store or whatever. So but I don't like retail. Now, regarding the office market, listen, nothing is new. When I started my chapter in, in New York, I converted quite a lot of a, a existing rental buildings from, a, a, sorry, office buildings from office to residential. Nothing is new. I did 49 East 21st Street. 225 uh, uh, Fifth Avenue, which was the gift building of New York for many, many years before me. Sure. 6556 Avenue, it, and, and on and on and on and on, right? 21 Astor Place. So, projects, I got to say, I mean, this was a time where things were on fire. Uh, you did amazing projects. Thank you. So, so the point is, okay, 
So again, we're gonna see we're gonna see office buildings that are you know in in a location that they're ripe to convert to residential that will be converted to residential. It's only about again inventory and supply and demand. It will it will it will happen in the next few years, and then to a point that the inventory will get to a point that there will be. Uh, enough demand for office, and this, and the same with uh, with uh, hotels. I mean, the only problem with hotels is that there are different rules that are were preventing developers from converting hotels to uh, to residential. But many hotels, many of the hotels, don't make sense, don't make financial sense, right. and there is no reason for them to to continue to operate as hotels. So that so, may change, right? I think the repositioning of some of these uh, yeah. sites, including hotels, I think maybe the zoning will have to change. But I think a lot of it has to do with local government and policies. Uh, we have a mayoral uh, election coming up uh, this year. Do you have a favorite candidate? Well, my favorite candidate is somebody that will think as a business uh, executive, as a CEO, and not as a politician, because the only way to have a quick recovery is to have a leader that will lead the city as a, as a CEO and not as, not, not as you know, just as a, as a typical uh, politician. So, you know, without naming names at this point of time, there are only few candidates at this point of time, and there are too many candidates, but only couple of them that potentially can can run the city as CEOs and but it's not only that it's also the other council members because a CEO has any CEO has to have a good executive team next to him sure. running the city you have to have the you know reasonable council member that think about the recovery and not how to push away the Amazon of the of the world from the city and yeah, the, top, the top 2%, obviously, of New Yorkers pay the, very much the bulk of taxes, and, and the city needs income. On the other hand, there are so many issues here with homelessness, and you know, affordable housing is, is something that just has to be tackled and addressed. Yeah. Um, there's got to be nothing, a, but, not, but nothing is new. I mean, look at Bloomberg. In my opinion, Bloomberg was a fantastic uh, a mayor, and the way he came is an extremely successful uh, businessman, a self-made businessman, and he he basically ran the city as as a huge a corporation, and it was very successful. He wasn't perfect, but it was very successful. To me, that's that's the right model to uh, to deal with it. Yeah. So you know, your company is very unique um, at at the at the start of 2021. There are a lot of developers, and I, I will need to cut this short, but I, I want to get I want to get some feedback from you about the future, right? So there are a lot of developers in the city. There are many developers with big portfolios that are sitting on inventory that hasn't sold in the better days and is not moving right now. Um, and and that's a lot when you have so much on your table every time, every morning you wake up and you have to deal with two, three, four, five projects with major inventory, not selling, not moving, and you have the bank you know, looking over your shoulder and at some point they're gonna come knocking, that's a lot of stress. That is a lot of issues. Now, you're positioned in, in amazingly, I don't know your whole portfolio, but 
you don't really have inventory that you have to deal with right now other than projects that you just opened and projects in the pipeline. So you have this two to three, four year kind of outlook in terms of waiting for the market to change, absorption to take place, conditions to improve. In the meantime, you're selling beautifully in, in a project against all odds in, in this market. You're kind of, you're in a, it's the perfect storm situation for you. Um, it is very possible, and I'd love to hear your opinion, that we will see defaults, that we will see properties going back to the bank. Um, there will be opportunities on the street for smart strategic capital to come in and grab uh, and benefit from in the next two to three years. It seems, I don't think there are a lot of developers like that in the marketplace with your history, with your reputation, with your experience, with your financial capability, because you obviously have very strong resources backing you uh, and for good reason uh, in terms of an outlook for the next two to three years. So, yes, I agree with you, but the defaults already started and, and, and there are a couple of uh, projects that uh, were, uh, you know, they are in a, in a, in a, in a substantial uh, stress and the lenders are uh, either uh, selling the, the note or, 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 or basically it's a, it's a friendly foreclosure uh, process. Uh, we are, uh, uh, our business plan for, for this year and next year is to hopefully, hopefully, to be able to buy uh, different positions in, in the market. We think it's a good time. We think we have less competition uh, than a few years ago. And we are hoping that we'll be able to take advantage of the situation. And we're hoping that our long-term view of the market, uh, which this is our view, it doesn't mean that that's what will happen, but we're hoping that our long-term view of the market, that New York is here to stay and, and, the, and the recovery will come in the next couple of years, we hope that that's what will happen. And, uh, and hopefully it will be, uh, it will work well for us. So yes, this year we are, as we speak, we are negotiating on trying to buy different things and we will continue to do it this year uh, and hopefully uh, uh, in next year and, and we'll see what will happen. So I wanna end up with, um, you know, I, 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 I've been in real estate in the city since, I've been doing real estate since 1986 and I've been fortunate enough to have worked with really good people. Um, the world, I started doing rentals and then I ended up doing resales for a very short period of time. And then I, I moved into new developments. I sort of found my calling in new developments. And the development world is very interesting and developers I feel are like a true separate breed from most people. You know, there's a, there's a famous line from a 1989 movie called Field of Dreams. Uh, starring Kevin Costner. I'm not sure if you saw the movie. If you didn't, it's a great movie to see. Uh, and the line is, if you build it, he will come. Now, the movie is about the ghosts of uh, baseball players brought back to life from uh, the Black Sox scandal era. And the he references uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, who turns out to be the main character's father, I believe. Ultimately, the movie is about uh, uh, the main character, against all odds, staking his farm and livelihood on fulfillment of his dream, which is building a baseball field. Now, 
the phrase is used often in business and was, I think, adopted by our industry, specifically developers, to mean if you build it, they will come, right? So the they, meaning buyers, or ultimately, um, in other words, your success as a developer. So if you have a vision or a dream and you put in the effort and you work on it and you push it, you will be successful. Now, we know that that's not true for every project and it's not true for every developer and nothing can just stay a dream. Uh, the effort and the infrastructure and everything we just discussed um, has to be part of it. But the essence of a developer, that, that feeling, that strive, that passion to build, to create, to do more, to do better, to find the next market, to find the next best deal, I think is really like the essence of New York in a way. You know, we live in a city that's very competitive, that's very challenging. The cycles are very short. It's not what it used to be. 10, 15 years ago, you used to put up a project, 100 units, 200 units, you would sell. No problem. And sometimes we sold them at 100 units in a, in a four-month period or a six-month period or 12-month period. Now it could take you three to four years to sell a project depending on, on the cycles. And the cycles just happen very short. But that resilience, right, that resistance to all of that and, and the passion to move forward is really very unique. In a way, again, the essence of New York, right? The biggest deal, the first big deal in Manhattan was the purchase of Manhattan, right? And, and so real estate is really in our DNA. And I got to say, I'm, I'm honored to have you on board with us today. I, I thank you for being here and for sharing your, your thoughts and your expertise. I think you have an amazing thing going. I think you're a great guy and I have an amazing infrastructure. And while you've been doing this for 25 years, I have a feeling that this is just the beginning for you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lomi. So thank you. Um, and thank you all very much for joining us today for our fourth Ruveni um, Real Talk. I hope you found our discussion informative. We welcome your input, suggestion, and, and comments. Uh, please subscribe to our weekly In Real Time report and follow us on social media. And uh, see you next time.